And as we do that, we recognize we're turning our hearts away from ourselves, away from our own lives, away from our own cares and concerns, away from our own even goals and ambitions as we seek to honor you here this morning. We pray that we would hear your voice, that you would speak to us. And we pray most of all that as we leave this place, you will have been glorified and our hearts will be changed. Draw us closer to yourself, Lord, this morning and use your word and your spirit to do it. In Christ's name, amen. Thanks, folks. You can have a seat. Uh, I have mentioned before, if you've been coming here to Mossbrook regularly or at least semi-regularly, you've probably heard me say before how much I love a good list. How many people have heard me say how much I love a good list? Okay. <laughs> now, Jay, it's not nice to exaggerate. Jay said hundreds of times, maybe a dozen times, Jay, I've said that. I do. I, I do. I love it. I love a good list. I love seeing what needs to be done during the course of a day and checking things off and seeing the progress. I've talked to you all about that. But I, I want to just allow you to come a little bit deeper into my mania, okay? Because the only thing that is better than a good list is a good plan. Is this thing on? A good plan. You know why a good plan is better than a good list? Because a good plan, you get to involve other people. Your list is just yours, but a plan. How many people love a good plan? That is exactly what I expected, about a third of you. And I've delved into the psychology of this. You know why only a third of you love a good plan? Because the other two-thirds are the poor people that have to get dragged into our plans, those of us who love a plan, right? You know that that's the case. I love a good plan. I love looking at what needs to be done. Hey, let's do this, and then let's do this, and then let's do this. It's logical. It's systematic. That's the way that my brain works. At least it's my logic. A plan. I love a good plan. Now, here we are today in this place celebrating Christmas, right? I mean, we have the decorations We have the songs at your house. If your house is like my house, you have lights. You maybe even have your tree up already. You have greenery or garland around and all kinds of little things appear that you don't see the rest of the year. Tiny lanterns and lights and candles and all those things. But we're here at church celebrating Christmas, which means we know what Christmas is really about, right? I mean, we know that it's not just about presents and and decorations and parties. We know that Christmas is about Jesus. We know that Christmas is about salvation. We know that Christmas is about being thankful for a way that we can go to heaven. And yet over the next three Sundays, Tim and I want to challenge even that thinking in your mind. We want to challenge you to think beyond that to think even bigger, and to understand that Christmas is about even more than just our salvation and going to heaven, because God has a plan. God has a plan. And Christmas 
and the birth of Jesus Christ is one critical step in that plan. Now, this is God's plan. God's plan is to glorify himself by establishing his eternal kingdom and redeeming a people for himself. Okay? I want you to see that. I know it's on the screen. I'm going to repeat it. I want you to think about that because that's what we're going to be talking about the next three weeks. That God's plan is to glorify himself by establishing his eternal kingdom and redeeming a people for himself. Now this morning we're going we're to explain that plan for you. Next week, Tim is going to be speaking about the extent of that plan. What does it affect? Who does it affect? And then on the 22nd, I'll be back to describe the excellency of this plan. Now, the first time that we hear of God's plan is in Genesis chapter 3. And that's where we're going to start today, in Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1. How many people, you don't have to tell me, but how many people know what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Or at least you know something that happens in Genesis chapter 3. Okay, well, excellent. There's no reason for everybody not to understand because apparently only four people know what happens in Genesis 3. That's okay. That's why we're here this morning, okay? So Genesis chapter 3 and verse 1, and I'm going to read all the way down through to verse 19, so bear with me as I read it. We need to get the whole picture. Now the serpent, I have an idea that once I get reading, some of you are going to say, I know what happens in Genesis chapter 3, so... Stop being so smart-mouthed up there. Okay, that's fine. You can say that. Just say it in your mind, not out loud. Now, the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord had made. And he said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But God called to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he, that is Adam, said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. And he, that is God, said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman you gave me to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. Then the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, Cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of this field. On your belly you shall go, and dust you shall eat all the days of your life. 
And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. How many people know what happens in Genesis chapter 3? Okay, that's slightly discouraging because some of you still don't know and I just read it for you. I'm going to move on from that. Pray for me that I can keep motivated to keep going here. Man, there is a whole lot that happens in Genesis chapter 3. I didn't even read the whole chapter. There is a lot that happens here. This is the first time we hear of God's plan. It was right there in the middle. Maybe you noticed it. But even though this is the first time that we heard of God's plan in Genesis 3, This plan has been in the mind of God since before the world existed. From eternity past, God tells us that he has had this plan. This passage is so informative, not just about God's plan, but I'm sure you noticed it, about the gospel, about sin, about relationships, about work, about gender roles, and death. It's all here. And there's a huge curse right in the middle of it. In verse 15, God gives us hope. So to recap everything that's happened in the first three chapters of Genesis that brings us to this point, God creates the universe out of nothing. There is literally nothing there. The scripture says there's just a void. Nothing. And God speaks the sound of his powerful voice. He speaks the world into existence. All of creation, including mankind. And it was, the scripture tells us, very good. It was, in fact, flawless. No suffering, no pain, and no death. You see, at the end of that passage I read for you, God said to Adam, you're dust, and to dust you will return. You will die. Now, you could have read that passage and thought, well, yeah, well, you're going to die. I mean, everybody dies. Not Adam. Nope. No death. It had never happened before. God says you're going to die. There was no suffering, no flaws, no pain, no death. And then Adam and Eve did something evil. 
they decided that they preferred the fruit that was on that tree to fellowship with God. Now let's pause here for a second because when we weigh things in our minds, don't we do this? Nod your head if you do this every day. You weigh right and wrong, good and bad. How bad is this really? When we weigh wanting a piece of fruit versus fellowship with God, we think, well, you know, how bad is that really? How evil? Can we really call it evil? Adam and Eve did something evil. Well, what I want you to see here this morning, this is all wrapped up in the plan, and this is what I really want you to gear your minds to as we look at this scripture. Choosing the fruit over fellowship with God was sufficiently evil in God's eyes that he sentenced Adam and Eve to death, and he subjected the entire world to suffering and chaos. You see that, right? When I was reading it, you see, all this goes in motion. Now, in our minds, that seems incredibly harsh, doesn't it? It seems rash. It seems like an overreaction, even. Yes, okay, it was wrong. God said, don't eat that fruit. They ate it. But isn't this too severe? Does the punishment really fit the crime? I want to suggest to you this morning that we are far too tolerant of sin. Well, let's think about what sin is from the situation. Okay, get this. Sin is when we remove God as ultimate authority and elevate ourselves to his place. That's what sin is. Now, sin is murder! Rape. It's assault. It's theft. All of those things, my friends, are manifestations of what happens right here, we remove God from authority and we place ourselves where he should be. We elevate ourselves. That's what happened here. God said, do not eat the fruit from that tree. What did Adam and Eve say? Adam and Eve said, we will decide what we eat and don't eat. Right? You see that, right? That's what they decided. No, we will eat it. Now listen, I'm sure that you have heard all these things and maybe you've watched movies and maybe you've read books and maybe you've talked about it and whatever, about what this tree was and this special fruit and its magical powers and all of that. That is all speculation. The scripture doesn't say anything about that. It doesn't say it was an apple. It doesn't say it was a pomegranate. It doesn't say anything. It just says, God said, don't eat it. And they ate it. That's what's important. Stop worrying about what it was and what it looked like and what color it was and whether or not it was juicy. And understand that the point was, God said, don't eat it. Eat it. 
and they ate it. So what were they doing? They weren't just eating a piece of fruit. They were saying, we will decide what we do and don't do. Thank you very much. That's what they were doing. And that is sin. By the way, that's the same thing that you and I do several times a day. I will decide what I do and don't do. We do not take sin seriously enough. We don't think about the fact that we are telling God to take a hike and we'll make our own decisions. We just think, well, it was just a little lie and it was really to protect their feelings because if they knew the truth and we justify and justify and justify. Be assured, however, that God does take sin seriously. I mean, you can see that here. Because of Adam and Eve's sin, God allowed the entire moral and spiritual and physical and relational world to become disordered. Take a few minutes sometime and turn to the front of your Bible and go to Genesis 1-1 and read the first two chapters and see how it's going. It's going quite well. And then we hit chapter 3, which is a pivotal point. And then keep reading. Do yourself a favor, take a half an hour and do it. And see what happens in Genesis 4, in Genesis 5, in Genesis 6. We go from Genesis 1, God saying, everything is perfect. It's very, very good. To Genesis chapter 6, verse 4, where God says, every thought of man was only evil continually. Is sin serious? You better believe it is. And all the calamities of the world are a preview of what sin deserves and what sin will one day receive. How many of you have ever read anything in Revelation? From about between Revelation 6 and Revelation 13. That'll scare the socks right off you. I mean, we can't even conceive of it. One thing happens and a third of the world's population dies. That's one judgment, friends. Are you horrified when you read it? Are you horrified at the end of chapter 8 or 9, I think it is, where it says the blood is as high as the bridles of the horses? That's the level of the devastation. Folks, that is how repugnant and how putrid our sin is before God, that it requires that kind of judgment. Take a moment, if you will, and picture the intricacies of a grandfather clock. Ever seen one of those? Seen the really beautiful ones where all of the work goes into the internals, 
It maybe has a glass panel or a door that you can open to see it and all that fine craftsmanship and you, you open the back and you see behind the face all of the gears and the shafts and the pins and the springs and it's all tuned to work so precisely, so smoothly and so perfectly. Some, there are people that still build these by hand and they're so accurate and they're so finely tuned that they lose like a second every three or four years. That's how perfectly and smoothly they run. And there's no power, there's no batteries, you don't plug it in. It just all works so perfectly. Then picture in that same clockworks, one of the main gears at the top, breaking away from its shaft and dropping down into the clockworks, twisting and snarling and smashing And now instead of a finely tuned precision machine, everything is grinding and groaning and shrieking and squeaking. And it's not functioning the way that it should. Humanity is that gear. Mankind is that main gear. And God's wonderful, perfect design was compromised when mankind said, I don't want to be here, I want to be up here. And so in the leap to go higher and supplant God as the ultimate authority, of course, mankind who falls far short of the glory of God, right? That's what Paul says, Romans 3.23, mankind fell even lower. Do you remember what God told Adam? Adam, do you see all of this that I have created? It's for you. It's yours. Take care of it. Use it. Enjoy it. You are in charge of this nature, Adam. And then what happened after sin? What did God say? Adam, (laughs) you're going to work yourself to the bone trying to bring nature under your control and make it do what you need it to do. Sin led to the curse. The curse leads to pain. And pain leads to death. Friends, all that is wrong with the world is because of sin. All that's wrong with the world is because of sin. It's tainted our work. It's tainted our social interaction. It's tainted our gender roles. It's tainted our health. Everything spiritual, emotional, psychological, and relational is tainted because of sin. And that's why... I know it's taken me a while to get here, but that's why God's plan is not just about our salvation in heaven. It is about that, thankfully, wonderfully, graciously, but it's not just about that. That's why God's plan is is about his exaltation. God's plan is about a reordering of the world. 
his ascendance to the throne of this world and our lives to the place that he rightly deserves visibly so that everyone in the world can see that he is God. See, everything begins to break down because we are out from under the lordship of Christ. It's all breaking down. And nothing is working the way that it was intended to. But wonderfully and graciously, in the middle of this terrible curse, which plagues humanity and the world to this day, is a promise. Let me read for you again, verse 15. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman, And between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. This sin has resulted in enmity, literally hostility. Now let's take a moment and think about what this verse is not telling us. It is not telling us that from now until the end of time that women will hate snakes. That's not what it is. I know you've read that too. I know you've heard it, but it doesn't say that. That's not what he's talking about. And this is not God taking the snake's legs away and making him crawl. I don't know where that comes from. Everybody talks about that too. Oh man, the serpent was beautiful and he had legs and he walked around and God took his legs away. No, it doesn't say that. It says you're going to crawl in the dust. It doesn't say you've never crawled in the dust, but now you're going to crawl in the dust. It says you're going to crawl in the dust. That's what you're going to do. Just like when he said the rainbow is a symbol of my faithfulness, it didn't mean there had never been anything like this before. He just said this is a symbol now. You're going to crawl in the dust, Satan. You're going to eat dust. We still use that insult, don't don't we, right now. You're going to eat my dust. Well, Satan's going to eat dust. The serpent's going to eat dust. What does it mean? It means that there's going to be hostility between satanic forces and mankind, between right and wrong, between sin and righteousness, between Satan's way and God's way. Friends, what it means is there is always going to be a battle. Folks, Stop being surprised when you see this battle in our world between good and evil, between sin and righteousness. Stop being surprised when you see this battle in our courts. If you're like me and you you read the news and you read some of the headlines, some of the things that our courts are doing, you say, how is this possible? That's ridiculous. Doesn't anybody see that this is wrong? Do not be surprised when you see it in our government. This battle between sin and righteousness. Do not be surprised when you see it in your relationships at home between husbands and wives. Do not be surprised when you see it. Do not be surprised when you have this battle with your children. Do not be surprised that there is a battle in your heart between sin and righteousness. Because God said it was going to happen. Enmity, hostility between Satan 
and mankind. A struggle, a battle. This is the result of sin. Satan and his ways and sin will hobble mankind. He said, you will bruise his heel. It will hobble mankind. And certainly Satan felt that he had accomplished something when Jesus went to the cross and died. But Christ in due time will deliver the fatal blow. You will bruise his heel but he will bruise your head. I dropped out of medical school early on, but I'd certainly rather have a heel problem than a head problem. Right? Has sin devastated this world? Has sin caused havoc in this world? Has sin caused grief and pain and death and disease? Of course it has, but ultimately, Christ will rule the day. Christ will win. This is our hope. Our hope is that this world will not always be this way. I mean, how many times in the course of a week do you roll out of bed and once the fog clears and you realize where you are and who you are and what you got to do and everything that's going on, you say, man, I wish it wasn't like this. What, five out of seven, six out of seven, perfect seven? That's our hope. Our hope is that the world will not always be this way. Whatever it is that comes to your mind the moment your eyelids flop open in the morning, whatever it is that burdens your heart, that weighs you down, that stresses you out, that seeks to destroy your peace and joy and happiness, that is a result of sin. It's a result of us taking God out of his place of authority and elevating ourselves to that place. But it will not always be that way. Because God's plan, God's plan is to glorify himself by establishing his eternal kingdom and redeeming a people for himself. That's the plan. The fulfillment of God's plan is going to result in all the world knowing and acknowledging and worshiping Him as God. And next week, Tim is going to talk to us about the extent of that plan, how wide and how broad that it is, and all that God wants to do, and all He is going to do. But you don't have to wait until that unknown future point to begin to see and to experience the power of God. In fact, the change can begin in you right now. In your heart and in your life. Because even though it's very obvious when we look around that the world is not ready to surrender to God's plan, you can. That's the glorious message of the gospel. See, the wonderful message of the gospel is that all that Jesus did on the cross is going to revolutionize everything at some point in the future. God is going to set up this kingdom. He's going to complete this plan. But the glorious message of the gospel is also that that can begin to happen in your heart today. That's the wonderful message of Christmas. 
We sang a song a little earlier, his name shall be in all of the names that are used of Christ. There are so many of them in the Old and the New Testament. I've probably said this before, probably nobody remembers, but I've said it before that my favorite name for Jesus is Emmanuel. Emmanuel. You know what that means? It means God with us. God with us. God is here with us now. And the baby in the manger is the Savior of the world, but he's also your Savior. He's your Messiah. See, this plan is macro. It's massive. It's huge. It involves the entire world and the universe, but it's micro. It's you. It's me. That baby is going to save the world, but he'll also save your soul. Transform your life and set it back into the order that he intended. He is the hope. He is the one the world needs. He is the one that you need and I need every day. We sing songs like that. We say that he's the light of the world and I speak of him the way that I have this morning from the scripture about being the hope of the world and the savior of the world. And then we think about what happens at Christmas and we think, that was a tiny gift that's going to change the whole world. Tiny and strangely wrapped. (laughs) No one was looking for him to come the way that he did. But he is the one. He is the Messiah. And I want to encourage you this morning. Maybe you're looking for something that's going to change your world, that's going to reorder your world because you know it's screwed up. I mean, you cannot live in this world and live life and not know that it's screwed up. I don't know what you're looking for, but I want to encourage and challenge you this morning that he is the one that you're looking for. Stop looking other places. It will be futile. Jesus is the gift, he's the hope, and he is the one that will reorder your life and ultimately reorder this world. That's the message of Christmas, a step in the critical plan of God to reorder this entire world in your life. Father, it is humbly that we bow here this morning, asking your forgiveness for the many times when we rip you from the throne and elevate ourselves. Asking forgiveness for the times when we are sure that we possess what is necessary to make our lives run the way that they should. Father, we need you. Some in this place admit it, some perhaps do not, but we acknowledge it as the truth this morning, and I pray that you will just give strength and mercy and grace to those that are listening here this morning. Open hearts, Lord, convince of your goodness and grace, and change our lives, Father. Change our lives in a way that honors you, brings them into line with what you have intended. And we look forward to the day when the culmination of the plan is seen and all this world bows the knee before Jesus Christ. I pray that as we go from here, you'll give us courage and strength. I pray that we will show your grace 
to the people that we come into contact with, especially at this time of year. As hearts are turned toward generosity, may we see and remember yours to us, and may we in turn pass it along to those that are around us. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you, folks. Have a great week.